I, I don't remember how we started. We, we, we say started, hello. Yeah, yeah, started with hello. Hello, hello, Philip. How are you? Uh, hello, Rachel. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not bad. It has been so long and I'm so excited that we're finally putting the podcast back out there. It is lovely because obviously we've been meeting up via social media each week in order to produce the Patreon videos that have gone out since the last collection of episodes. But not everyone's subscribed to our Patreon yet, so they won't have seen those. So as far as they're concerned, we've been off the grid. We haven't. We've been busy. There was something else we were doing during the break. We started a new project called The Portion Portion, which has been put out on social media and uh, is also going to be out on the podcast platform very shortly as well. But that's a weekly look at the Torah portion of the week. A weekly look of the week, just to make sure you know when it's going to come up, very, very clear. And it's been a fun project. We'd started it in memory of my lovely friend, Rena, who I was going to create a podcast along those lines with. And we're going to try and stick it out for the whole year, like the whole year of the Torah reading cycle. I can't promise it will be an ongoing thing for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I think Judaism is something you can dip into for a year and then that's it. <laughs> so if you've not seen any of those, look out for them on our Facebook page or on the podcast platform. We're back. What have you been up to? What yeah. else has been going on in your life? drama was uh, that our landlord suddenly needed his house back and we moved house to what became a nightmare of Channel 5 documentary series proportions where it transpired that everything was falling apart despite looking beautiful on the outside. Very much a metaphor for my own life I think. <laughs> beautiful on the outside collapsing on the inside. <laughs> I mean, in a way, that's true for all of us, I'd say. So that was that was the main thing, is that that did take up a lot of energy, which, you know, I couldn't really spend on a podcast. That, and no. we finally got to celebrate my son and daughter-in-law's wedding just a year and a quarter after their actual marriage because of the whole pandemic-y lockdown-y thing. To be fair, I think that's how all weddings should be celebrated. Give the couple a chance to know it's meant to be, and then, <laughs> then you have the party. Because how often do you go to a wedding and go I could have kept the receipt for this gift well happily all gifts have now had the sticky label taken off them and uh, are put in a place in the house and have been used well muzzle tov muzzle tov to you for that also the headache I guess with putting together a podcast like this was that people started to go back to work gigs started happening life took over we had the luxury I guess during lockdown of having access to ourselves and guests who had very little else to do so we put together an eclectic mix of guests for the next batch of episodes which we are very very excited to bring to you one question we do have to ask Rachel is how Jewish has your week been? The big highlight and I feel like there should be some kind of drum roll or applause or maybe a choir of heavenly angels at this moment should is... i help i mean that was great but could you do it and a choir of heavenly angels <laughs> the big excitement in the orthodox british jewish community this week has been the reveal that mcvitie's biscuits are now considered to be kosher not all of them, but a whole tranche of their flavours and types of biscuits. And it feels like my childhood dream has finally come to fruition, that I can eat the same biscuits out the supermarket as everyone else, and also that my grandma had in her cupboard that we were supposed to avoid. When you said not all of them, I thought for a moment you were going to have to go through one packet of biscuits, choosing which were the kosher <laughs> ones you have. So, it's like, what one, one for me, one for Jew. 
one for me <laughs> one for is there a reason they became kosher did something change well what happened was the sephardi kosher authority which i'm fully happy to change to become sephardi if anyone will have me i am quite on the pale european side for that but you know i'd give it a good go they seem to have suddenly realized that if those sort of products are licensed elsewhere and then shipped in here then there's no reason why we shouldn't be eating them. I think that was like the main bulk of it. And then they sort of checked various things out. All I can tell you is that it is incredibly exciting and also very similar to when Baskin Robbins ice cream got certified kosher except for like four flavours. So they would always have on the door of the shop um, our ice cream is kosher except for I remember Rocky Road was one of them but there were like three or four which you couldn't have and you could have all the others and it's a bit like that with the McVitie's biscuits so give me a digestive give me a hobnob like it's all exciting and then there's probably I don't know little pig shaped ones that I can't have presumably the shape isn't the problem it's the ingredient <laughs> yeah just looking like a pig isn't enough do you, to want, make do you want to know the rabbinical argument that says that that is I'm gonna say yes I do not mean it <laughs> well uh I'll keep it to myself then. No, no, go go for it. Just that in theory, you're not meant to eat something that looks like something not kosher in case someone walks by, sees you eating it and thinks, oh, well, if Rachel Krieger's eating a pig, then presumably pigs are kosher. I just didn't realise I made a terrible mistake. And they'll nip into the nearest McDonald's for a Big Mac in the blink of an eye. So that I can vaguely understand, but I do think it's a bit of a leap to think that someone would see you eating a <laughs> biscuit shaped like a pig and then go, oh, oh, Big Mac. Listen, people are people. What can I people tell you? People called you worse, I imagine. I don't know. <laughs> what about you? What's been the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? Yesterday, my wife and I came back from a lovely holiday that we had in New York. We went to see my sister, who four months ago had a baby. It's the first time we see my sister for over two years now, since before lockdown, because she's been in uh, America and she's not been able to come back here. And we weren't able to get to see her. And we met my gorgeous nephew, who really, really was lovely to spend time with. But there were a few things in New York that obviously felt Jewish, but not just because you're in New York, which has a particularly Jewish feel to it. Uh, the first thing was on the flight out, my wife had ordered a kosher meal mm -hmm. and they didn't bring it to her. And when they tried to give her the regular meal and she said, oh, I'd order the kosher meal, it turned out they'd given it to someone else who hadn't contested the fact it was kosher and had just started eating it, wow. even though obviously it comes sort of 20 minutes before everyone else's food. So what they had to do in the end, I think they did take from the person the main kosher meal back, but they said to my wife, I'm really sorry, you can't have any of the other bits on, on the tray because they've already started them or, or something. I, I don't One know. minute, that... it was like an open thing, but he's only eaten some bits and then they brought the rest of it to her and said just like... Well, you know what, on, a, on an aeroplane tray, they will have the plate of hot food and that's okay. covered. And then you've got a salad, maybe you've got a cracker and cheese or something and a roll. So I guess he'd started, or she, I don't know who was actually, they had started all of the accompaniments, but not started tucking into the main i i don't know so that was the first thing and the second thing was it seems to me whenever i go to new york i randomly bump into someone that i've not seen for 20 years last time we were there it was eight years ago now we were in a restaurant and at the next table was an old drama school friend and his wife who were visiting from connecticut he's british she's american and randomly at the very next table there they were and then this time, on a whim, joined my sister at one of the baby gym classes that she goes to. And it was in a synagogue, coincidentally.
incidentally, by the way, that's not a Jewish <laughs> organization. We went and there was only one dad in the room and I gave him a kind of very quick glance. And then a few moments later, I looked back and I thought, oh my goodness, I know that guy. He really? was at Yeah. So this random connection of being in this room, the baby gym class, whatever it was. And it was a friend of mine called Stephen Carlisle, who I've not seen for about 10 years. But we were at drama school together about 20 years ago. He was a year above me. He's currently playing Scar in The Lion King on Broadway. I and you're he... here doing this. Absolutely. We're all living our dream. It was so bizarre. I went over and had a, we had a nice little chat, nice catch up. Didn't offer me free tickets, but not important. <laughs> but it was it was just that typical thing. You, know, you always expect as a Jew, you're going to see other Jews and whatever. But these two encounters, the one eight years ago and the one this time, not Jewish in the least. Yeah, so to me, that felt very Jewish. I went to New York and just totally random uh, bumping into somebody. That is quite incredible, the bumping into people. And it is often Jews who bump into other Jews. Because, like, I always think if I've decided to go on holiday somewhere really remote, like if I went, decided to go to Botswana, for argument's sake, and because I'm far away from everyone, I'll just, you know, I'll take off the headscarf. I'll just wear, like, shorts and a T-shirt and mooch about like an ordinary tourist. You can 100% guarantee that I'll bump into somebody from my synagogue. That's how it will work. And they'll be like, oh, my goodness, and she's eating a pig-shaped biscuit. <laughs> what, what is the world coming to? Now I don't know what's what. <laughs> anyway, now we've got a very exciting first episode of the year for you. Uh, normally we chat to two guests. This time we sort of are chatting to two guests, but they've kind of been amalgamated into one because we have a writer who's got a pseudonym. The way you said that sounds like the beginning of uh, Pesach. Like, you know, there's that whole Passover tradition of why is this night different from all other nights, you know, and then people have done quirky things to make it interesting for the children, which in a way is what we've done with this. So, yeah, very exciting. Daniel Handler, who is better known as Lemony Snicket. And I am a mega fan of the Lemony Snicket books. I've read them all. I've watched the films. My kids love them. And it was really exciting to chat to him. Regular listeners will recognise much of the show, but we have updated the music we've been using. So sit back and enjoy the show. <laughs> I'm Rachel Krieger and I'm Philip Simon. We are two Jewish comedians. I'm Orthodox and I spent lockdown perfecting my chicken soup recipe. And I'm Reform and I spent lockdown hearing about this chicken soup that I'm yet to taste. This show is the audio equivalent of Monopoly. Surprisingly exciting, longer than you'd expected and it usually ends with someone tipping over the board. In each episode we chat to two of our favourite Jews about their lives and experiences growing up and how much Jewishness plays a part. Are they singing Yentl or silently judgmental? Welcome to Jew Talking to Me. Let's introduce our guests who are both the same person. Daniel Handler, better known as Lemony Snicket, is the author of many children's books, including a series of unfortunate events, which has sold over 60 million copies and been transferred to the big and small screen. His newest book, Poison for Breakfast, is out now. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. That's a lovely bio. Thank you very much. Lovely to have you here. Uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know we always like to find out how our guests self-define as Jews. You already know that I'm Reform and Rachel's Orthodox. Yeah. Daniel, what kind of Jew are you? 
I am susceptible. That is the kind of Jew I am. What other Jews are nearby? I become the best Jew of that sort that I can be. So I, <laughs> I was raised in a fairly flaky uh, reform Judaism mm-hmm. uh, background. And my whole family waxed and waned depending on how other family members were close by or anything like that. And then I married a uh, woman from the conservative tradition, and that was the same uh, waxing and waning. And I realized, uh, like I think all Jews, secret hero Leonard Zelig, that I just kind of, if, if I'm near someone who says, like, I can't even imagine life without keeping kosher anymore. I say, oh, yeah, 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 me too. And then I go home <laughs> and my wife is cooking up prawns. And I say, these prawns are delicious. This is exactly what God wanted of my people. So um, <laughs> I'm an extremely susceptible Jew. I think it's a bit like when people are susceptible to accents. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend growing up who, whenever she was around anyone from any other part of the country, would take on their accent. Yes, I'm doing it now. I I don't sound very British, but I sound way more British than I actually am because I'm talking to you two. It's terrible. It's bloody awful there. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. You sounded like the Queen. (laughs) I think that's so interesting because there is that tendency to try and match up with whoever the crowd is. And I had a relative who wasn't religious, but whenever they hang out with us, uh, they would always be like, oi veying, and um, using every possible Yiddish and Hebrew word they could, like shoehorn into the conversation. Yeah. Uh, we don't even talk like that, like we're from, but we don't, that's not how we talk. Right. But even kind of beliefs, even when I just uh, actually had lunch with a modern Orthodox guy and he was talking about kind of various touchstones in his day that help him along. And I was like, me too, even though no one would ever call me a modern Orthodox. Like, I definitely have those touchstones. And I thought, well, I do have them, but I'm making him believe that we have the same touchstones. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's very weird. A people pleaser, perhaps. A member of the tribe pleaser. Right. Or just, um, you know, there's so much conflict over uh, religious denominations. And I like that Judaism is on such the low scale of that. So I like to keep that going. I feel that's something we have for us. Right. We didn't have a 300 years war between different branches of Judaism where they're still kind of angry at each other. We don't have that. So we just think like, oh, OK. So then if someone says, obviously, we're not going to have any milk at this meal. I say, no, 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 no. I was about to say the same thing, of course. <laughs> no. I, think, I think it's about being Jewish when it suits. I know if I'm on an airplane and there's uh, you know, the chicken or the pork and they get to you and they say, oh, we've run out of chicken. I become the most Jewish person ever. Uh, yes, of I, course. Well, well, I, I can't eat pork. I can't. I can't, I'd better have a kosher meal. And even though I wouldn't have ordered the kosher meal because I'm not that kosher, I don't want the pork. So, yeah. Do you ever have to say, like, you know, I'm all crowded together on a method of transportation? Obviously, this is a very painful, traumatic experience inherently for people of my faith. <laughs> so, we should be served the best food possible as a reassurance. Absolutely. I'm obviously, yeah. I, should, I should be in business class, but I've, I've accepted I need to be in economy. Um, <laughs> don't you understand? <laughs> At heart, I'm a wealthy person and should be treated as such. I think that would be... Haven't my people suffered enough? Yeah. That, that's how you win any argument. Haven't my people suffered enough? We should be all treated like we're very wealthy. It's like a, a weird swing from Judaism right into anti-Semitism super quickly. <laughs> yeah, there so are I'll... two sides <laughs> of the same coin. <laughs> Aren't they, though? And I'm, it's so interesting you would say coin, Rachel. <laughs> mm. I know, it's an obsession. Yeah. <laughs> what can I say? I'm busy uh, like a phoenix. Um, 
Ignore what I just said because I realised it relates to a WhatsApp that I didn't send to either of you, which is oh. about, well, it was about a while ago and there was like a spate of things about anti-Semitism and someone said on the chat, we'll rise above it like a phoenix. And I said, you know what, phoenixes are gold. <laughs> also, they don't rise, phoenixes don't rise above something, no. they rise up after they've been destroyed. Phoenixes yeah. are notoriously petty. They they come back to bear a grudge. They don't. Yeah, which sounds right. very Jewish. Sure, very Jewish, actually, but not in the way that they meant. That's if anything, a phoenix like. is the mascot of a Bruegus. For Americans, there's Phoenix, Arizona, which has a uh, complicated Jewish community for sure. Do they keep destroying the Jews and then we keep turning up again? It's more of a um, leftist, right wing political access in a small mm. town on a border state. It's all very irritating. I mean, everywhere. Has has it in its own little way. Every community, yeah. I think. We, we love to disagree with each other. That's part of being a family. No, no. I'm sorry. I don't think we do. No, no, me either. Although I can see either, both of you have a very good point. I don't think we do. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Only one of you has a good point. That's what I meant. I don't oh think I goodness. do. <laughs> this is exhausting. Yeah. This is like dealing with either of my children. I don't think it is. <laughs> this, this could go on. It's already I mean, gone on. I think it's gone on too much. Um, All right. Let's Anything move on. Anti-Semitism. Is that what we're discussing? I am against it. <laughs> uh, whatever we're discussing, it's somehow always anti-Semitism. Have you ever read the book, What We Talk About, when we talk about Anne Frank? Oh, yeah. Nathan Englander. He's a pal of mine. Is he? That's a great... Yeah. I love that book. And I love that I story sat, in particular. Once I sat next to him and uh, people some, were accidentally handing me that book. They would hand him his book and they would hand me my book. But sometimes they would accidentally hand me one of his books. And I would cross out Anne Frank on the title page. And I would sign my own name to change the book to be called What We Talk About, What We Talk About, Daniel Handler. <laughs> that is the rare collective copies funny. of Nathan Handler's book. They'll be on eBay um, for millions. Yeah. Philip, have you ever read it? And if not, I will lend it to you. I haven't read it, actually. And I think it's one of the books that you've said before you will lend me. And we've never got around to actually exchanging it because I think there was a global pandemic that got in the way. But I hate it yeah, I'm very happy to borrow it if you. Yeah, she's it. had it in a tote bag uh, outside her house for the past <laughs> two and a half years. Yeah, and we moved house during the pandemic, so it's probably got ruined by now. But yeah, no, it's interesting. It's the, the premise of that short story is that really whatever conversation you're having with someone who's not Jewish, the subtext is, would you hide me in your attic? And that's, yeah. all, that's all there is to the relationship. And I thought, that's quite fascinating. And now I do think that a little bit when I speak to other people. If they, if they want to become friends with me, that's what I want to know about them. How friendly are we? Yeah, I have a friend who has a quite the setup out in the country, a house and another little house and another little house down the lane, blah, blah, blah. and I borrow it sometimes to um, work on my books in peace and quiet. And I've said to him before, sometimes I can't decide, like, when they come for me, will I be hiding at this house or will I be hiding at this house? The different advantages and disadvantages. And he finally said, everyone else says, like, I can't choose where I'd rather live if I had to live. You're the only one who says I can't believe choose where I would hide when they were coming. <laughs> so I informed yeah. him that he needed more Jewish friends and then it would be more common. They should Although put on those... the other hand, him not having a lot of Jewish friends, meaning that I would get first dibs. There's pros and cons of, of no, all these sure. things. Yes. Well, I think we all know there are many pros and cons of having Jewish friends. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, what is the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? I guess having dim sum on Christmas. It was Christmas not that long ago for people who right. are listening to this. 
And uh, certainly it is a deep American tradition. Uh, now I'll find out if it's a deep British tradition for Jews to have Chinese food on Christmas. And so we went to a dim sum place and 12% of the Jewish population of the San Francisco Bay Area was in this dim sum place all having noodles. And it was funny. I mean, it's always funny. But every year we have Chinese food and every year it's almost an entirely Jewish populated Chinese restaurant. And this actually led to some controversy because during the pandemic, at least in San Francisco, there was a little bit of a, oh, everybody's Jewish this year because we're all, none of us are really doing Christmas. And so we're ordering Chinese food too. And the best Chinese restaurants in San Francisco were completely overwhelmed. And mm -hmm. it led to this thing of like, you're appropriating our appropriation of something else. You can't <laughs> announce that you're Jewish because the Jews are busy announcing that they're Jewish. And so therefore are entitled to Chinese food. And was no one saying anything about the pandemic possibly originating in China and now suddenly the extra food is being sold? And what's all that about? No, I, I mean, I'm sure somewhere somebody was saying something ghastly all of the time. No, I mean, I think when dumplings are served, it is very, very deep racism to deny yourself a dumpling. If you're going to be angry when dumplings are served, that is, that's how you really know who hates a culture the most, is if they're refusing the dumpling <laughs> of the culture. If you turn down a blintz, that yeah. is deeply anti-Semitic. That's worse. Yeah. That's almost the worst kind of anti-Semitism. Or chicken soup last neighbor. Yeah. If you say, like, I don't like matzo balls, you're a monster. That's not an accidental prejudice. That's not an unexamined prejudice. That is monstrosity, conscious monstrosity. That's the only explanation. Also, I think we're now at the stage where we can forget that the disease or originated in China. I think it's been so long now. Yeah, I think I'm blessed to live in San Francisco, which has a very uh, generally progressive stance and a large Asian population. And so oh, there were definitely some Asian anti-Asian incidents. And I'm sure that uh, there's much more that I haven't seen that hasn't been visible. But that didn't seem like the predominant anxiety that was going on during heavy COVID and certainly not now. So I'm sure it's happening everywhere, but it seems it feels at least less visible in San Francisco. That's a blessing. And have you yeah. always been in San Francisco or did you move there for the dumplings? Um, <laughs> I, well, I grew up here. And so thus I grew up thinking that such dumplings were available in any old place. I remember that what I thought I retained from growing up in San Francisco was that I liked living in a medium sized city. And then in college, I dated a woman who lived in Pittsburgh, whose family's from Pittsburgh, and I went to Pittsburgh and I thought, oh, my medium-sized city is actually quite unique. This I don't want to live in any medium-sized city. I want to live in that one. And mm -hmm. so I lived in New York for a few years, but mostly I've been here and I'm, I'm stuck here now. The dumplings are not the reason that I stay in San Francisco, but they certainly make a strong case. I wouldn't look askance at anyone who said that was the reason they lived in San Francisco. One of the best dumpling places burnt down a couple of years before COVID. And I think that was the first major tragedy since Prince's death, as far as everyone I knew was concerned. People were like, oh my God. And I remember that everybody got out safely. No one was killed in the fire. And so people said, well, that's something. But it, it was a small relief that this dumpling <laughs> place was gone. Oh, it was terrible. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. What I keep coming back to in my head is the idea of J uh, Jews definitely going out for Chinese food on Christmas, because that isn't a British thing at all. And I thought it was just like in films and, uh, you know, I've no, not no, been no, to America. What do, Brits, what do British Jews do on Christmas? 
It depends when it is, because I if think it's, it's always December twenty fifth. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you see, this is this is like when I say to my mum, "When's Hanukkah?" and she and she goes, "Twenty fifth of Kislev." Yeah. Right, Kislev. That's the one. My mum's going to love this episode purely for that moment. <laughs> what I meant was, it depends what day of the week it is. Because right. if it's a Saturday, therefore it's Shabbat and the Jews can't take part, you get a lot more smug, oh, no, we don't do Christmas at all. Right, right, right. If it's any other time, it's just Turkey, it's the regular thing. We have friends who did a Christmas Eve Chinese every year because mm. I think they'd taken that from the American traditions of right. Chinese, but they didn't want to lose Turkey, so they did it on Christmas Eve. I mean, I guess plenty of Jewish people tag along to someone's Christmas celebration, but I think it would be weird to try to have a Christmas dinner if you were a Jewish family in America. It's mm. interesting. A lot of people also... do get like an ironic turkey. Like even my lovely religious family would have an ironic turkey in the right. vicinity of Christmas just for the fun. Well, um, see, we have a month before we have Thanksgiving. So we've had a tur- yeah. we've had a big turkey dinner not that long ago. Um, so you've turkeyed out. But I remember that I used to wonder about British Jews, specifically prompted by that everything but the girl song, where Tracy Thorne sings, "Every day is like Christmas Day without you. It's cold and there's nothing to do." And that I used to think, is she Jewish? Are they all Jewish <laughs> thing to say? I don't think she's Jewish. But it made me wonder about all of the like the, the heavy Christmas cheer that one associates with Britain, and that that might must be even more alienating in Britain than it is in America for Jewish people. Yeah, and there's only a handful of kosher Chinese takeaways as well. So that's challenging. Yeah, yeah. well, that would be an example that even, for instance, my wife's family that keeps kosher at home um, will happily eat a dumpling with anything in it because it is delicious from a Chinese restaurant. So do you think the connection is that the food is so similar? You know, you've got knedlach and the dumplings, or really like they're like pierogi things, aren't they? Like potstickery dumplings, and then you've got noodles and lakshan. You're asking two things. I think the tradition of having Chinese food on Christmas came from the fact that the Chinese restaurants were open rather than every other restaurant. And so that was what we began to have. Once for my birthday, when we lived in New York, my wife ordered whatever the dumpling was from every single culture that she could think of. So we had people over and we had ravioli and samosa and pierogi and every, you know, every dumpling from every single place in the world. And mm-hmm. when they were all together, you could see what a good idea they were and how it's not surprising that they're nearly universal. They're so good. Put something in something else. Oh, what a great idea. There is another Jewish source that we've managed to uh, draw on, Wikipedia, which says <laughs> that it, dates, it dates at least as early as 1935 when the New York Times reported a certain restaurant owner called Eng Shi Chuk, who brought chow mein on Christmas Day to the Jewish children's home in Newark. Oh. So it wasn't just, I guess, that the Chinese restaurants were the only ones open, uh, but also that they were giving us free food. I'm such a bad yeah. person because I immediately thought, what, just chow mein? I definitely thought that as well. Yeah. <laughs> you do? Oh, where that's where the phrase comes from. What am I, chow mein? <laughs> <laughs> you can picture all of the children opening the container of chow mein and then looking over the shoulder of the gentleman to see if there was more. Like, oh! <laughs> Well, at least we, we know that you are well fed as a result of Christmas. We also want to check in with you generally, see how life is going. We always like to ask, what's the matter, Bubbler? So yeah. what's going on with you? Well, the thing that I would complain about today is a uh, movie that I saw a couple of days ago 
that enraged me because of the work that I've done and, and film and television, you know, we get these screeners for the Oscars, which every year feels sillier. So they're DVDs that come of movies that they're hoping will win the Oscar. And of course, increasingly, these are on platforms that probably you already have. And so they still feel like a present. Oh, look at the free DVD of a movie that we're paying a monthly charge that we could watch anytime we want. And so we watched it and it was a movie uh, in which some aliens were attacking and some brave people were trying to defend us all from the aliens. And the aliens are uh, going up a stairwell and a man says, <laughs> aim for the head, that's where they're lethal. And it just, all of it enraged me because first of all, in every alien movie, they say aim for the head as if that's a surprising weakness, as if no one's <laughs> ever seen a movie in which you're shooting creatures. Like, of course you aim for the head. Where else would you name? And then they say, that's why they're lethal. That's not why they're lethal. That's why they're vulnerable. Mm. And it just enraged me yes. that I was watching this, that millions of dollars had been spent. I think there were four writers credited with the screenplay and they still use the word lethal when they when the word vulnerable. They're almost opposites. That's what's bothering me today. Maybe it wasn't what the word lethal they got wrong. Maybe they meant aim for the gun. That's where it's lethal. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's because thoughts have so much power. <laughs> aim for the head. That's where it's lethal to them if you <laughs> if you aim for that properly. They didn't have time to say the whole sentence. They were being chased by aliens. But then my wife was saying, yeah, that would be great. You, you would then be huddled up in a corner of the building after this attack and more aliens would be coming. And you would say, I know we just have a moment, but... You said lethal? I, mean, I, know, I don't know, and I'm very grateful for everything that you've done for me and my family and for the whole planet at large. But why save civilization if you're going to start <laughs> using words willy-nilly as if they mean anything? It's ridiculous. I think if they were filming that on their body cams, that would be the outtakes at their Christmas party. They'd all be there eating their chow mein, and they'd be like, Dave said lethal when yeah. he meant vulnerable. Watch this. Watch this, guys. And they'll say it back. <laughs> Yeah, I think in general, body armor cam bloopers is a, it's a genre that we haven't seen enough of yet. Oh, it's coming. But, yeah, it's coming. Yeah. And can we know what the film was? The Tomorrow War. Tomorrow, Tomorrow War. War. Yeah. And the future were aliens. So you have to come here and it, it has a, a, a long contrived conceit to get you to fight aliens to begin with, which is funny to me because... I think in real life, if aliens started coming, we wouldn't need a conceit to fight them. No. Do you think we'd fight them or do you think we'd welcome them? Would there be the assumption it was negative? Given what is happening with the pandemic right now, which which seemed like an easy question for many of us, uh, I would say that we'll be busy arguing. There'll be some scathing hot takes on the ways in which aliens are either offensive or in which we are offensive for the ways in which we're treating the aliens. That's what I think will happen. What could be more Jewish than interrupting our own show to remind you that back episodes of the podcast are available on all of the usual platforms, as well as our website, jewtalkingtome.com. And as well as catching up on things you've missed, why not be the first in line to hear all future episodes by subscribing to our Patreon? For just a small monthly donation, you'll get exclusive access to free gifts, bonus footage, live events, and much, much more. This is your chance to support the podcast, in return for which we'll keep doing what we've been doing, as well as putting out extra content just for you. To find out more, just go to patreon.com forward slash talking without the G. Go on, it's what your mother would want. And now, back to the show. I just had a quick look. It has a good cast, The Tomorrow War. Chris Pratt, 
J.K. Simmons. It's, it's got some Oscar. Yes, and I'm always happy when someone wins an award and then you see them very quickly in maybe four very high-budget movies, you know, and you know they went from being absolutely not considered for that at all to playing <laughs> old roles, and you just kind of wish you were friends with them, so you would say, this is, a, I, this is much better than your old apartment. This is really good. And they would say, yeah, I was fighting aliens for a couple of weeks. I never begrudge anyone that. It makes, it delights me. So I remember I saw J.K. Simmons and I thought, that's exactly what I mean. You were in the trenches as a character actor forever. You got lucky with that jazz drummer movie, who would think? And now there you are being like, we got to fight these aliens, man. Yeah. Do you know what I would do straight away? I'd straight away buy like one of those white porcelain dogs that Joey and Friends buys the minute he gets a proper good paying job in a soap. I bought a towel warmer. A towel warmer. That's like when, when your career took off, that was the thing. Yeah, that was the first thing that I bought. And my wife, it actually just finally died. She had it forever, but I bought her a, a really beautiful bright red purse that we um, used to refer to as the Nickelodeon purse because Nickelodeon was the first company to option a series of unfortunate events. And we would be like, yeah, wear your Nickelodeon purse tonight. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I bought a towel warmer, which again is a, in America, that's a, a rare luxury item. It feels like in the UK, everyone has a towel warmer, right? You well, we need warmer. them. I can't remember who it was. I think it was Michael Caine who told a story about a film he was in that he was only in for a few minutes and he got paid a million dollars to do it and someone said to him have you seen the film and he said no but i've seen the house the film bought yeah it's that isn't it this is yeah, nickelodeon fair. handbag and and towel warmer but i remember it felt I, it felt like an unspeakable luxury to step out of the shower and grab a towel and have it warm that felt magic i think that's very relatable yeah who doesn't want that We were chatting, I'd say for longer than a lot of people probably have, about noodles and dumplings, which are mm -hmm. both, you know, they're both subjects after my own heart. Yeah. But do you have any other particular memories that are connected to Jewish food? I mean, I grew up in an extended Jewish family that got together a whole lot. And so I think there would be uh, everything expected from such a Jewish family would happen and everything was delicious. But what I think of is that when I was little and my mother would take me grocery shopping, you know, and I would say, oh, can we get this? Can we get this? And my mother would say about so many things. Jews don't eat that. Oh. And what that meant was, I'm not going to buy it for you. And there's no argument. But it took me many years <laughs> to realize that. And I would think, like, really? Animal crackers? That seems strange. And sometimes I would go to another Jewish person's house and there would be the coveted food item. But still my mother would say, yeah, Jews don't eat that. Um, Did you ever question it with the friends when you're at their house? You know, you're at that age where your parents seem more irrefutable than the world, right? Mm -hmm. And then slowly that changes until you become an adolescent where if your parents say it's raining outside, they're definitely wrong. But when you're a child, I think you accept, you just think, well, I guess those people aren't Jews or they're bad Jews or they don't know the rule. There's definitely a rule that's immutable because why would my mother say such a thing in their grocery store? My mother, who's never lied to me for any reason. <laughs> I don't want to brag at this point, but I think my seven-year-old has hit adolescence. <laughs> <laughs> I think your mom was a criminal mastermind. That's an absolutely genius idea. I cannot wait to say that she's been described as a criminal mastermind on a Jewish podcast, she will be overjoyed. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're right, they are susceptible. When my son was five, I told him that the photos in a dessert menu in a restaurant was everything they'd run out of. 
And wow, Philip. And he, he believed it. So when they were like, oh, we're almost out of chocolate sundaes, and someone said, quick, 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 take a picture, take a picture. <laughs> take a photo, get the last one. He believed it. So I respect your mother greatly for that. And I, I love the idea, oh, we're Jewish. We, we, we don't do that, we're Jewish. Thinking of your menu thing, though, it's like a plaque on the wall. You know when you're someplace ordinary, and there's a plaque that says, like, oh, but it used to be wonderful, look. It used to be an ice skating rink. Look, there's a. Here's when the princess came, and we had a huge party for her with champagne. And now it's a crappy supermarket. Here you are on this site. I never really kind of told those sort of lies to my kids, but I sort of would make up absolute nonsense instead. My favorite thing I recently told on my kids was that um, Tito Jackson's real name is Tiny Tony Jackson. It's so silly. Tito, Tiny Tony, yeah. Yeah, Tiny Tony Jackson. I said, that's that's his like that's his real name. And they were all like, yeah, no, no, no. But it did. I did see Googling going on to double check. Right, I know Googling. I mean, when you've spent a childhood before Google, then you just have to rely on that information or you make something up. <laughs> when my son was little, we had this huge omnibus, a Richard Scary omnibus. That I have that. So boring to read. Beautiful illustrations, by the way, but very boring to read, you know, because you had to read 90 stories to get through it or something. And we read it to him on the airplanes and we would do a sleight of hand where it would be in the pocket of the airplane. That was the lie we told him. Oh, that's gorgeous. And so at home, it was impossible. It's not at home. It's on the airplane. But I love the idea that United Airlines thought, you know what we should do? We should have a copy of that Richard Scarry omnibus in every pocket of the plane. <laughs> People love to read that book. But obviously, we're not going to have any copies sold commercially, says the publisher. That would be tacky. It's going to be only for <laughs> It'd be like the That's hotel really equivalent cute. of the Gideon Bible. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Are you a lonely traveler and you don't know where to turn? Well, let's see what Wormley is up to. Let's see what is <laughs> <Wormley is> doing. <laughs> So were there foods that you genuinely weren't allowed to eat because you were Jewish, such as pork, bacon, ham, things like that, that when you discovered that your mum had been making up these falsehoods, you thought, oh, maybe that I can eat? Well, we didn't keep kosher at home. We didn't have pork in the house. And whenever we had shellfish, we made some kind of joke about how we shouldn't be having shellfish. That was, <laughs> that was how, our, how it was arranged. And the not preparing pork was definitely more cultural than it was religious. And so my mother never made pork chops in our life. But then sometimes we'd be like, oh, look, prosciutto is delicious. We should bring prosciutto home because it's delicious. But not so, on animal crackers because... Yeah, no, but so it was, it was all the colorful what you want when you're in a supermarket when you're seven years old it's not um, mm. prosciutto <laughs> you would love it if it were but it isn't it's all the you know garishly colored desserts and cereals lots of cereal that is actually nine cookies ground up in a bowl that was the things that she said Jews couldn't eat. Jews ate bagels for breakfast. Ooh. Bagels. Good call. Yeah, but because he's, he's American, he doesn't know any better. What does that mean? Because uh, <laughs> the argument I over mean, whether I agree. it's... I agree that I'm American and I don't know any better, but I don't know. <laughs> it's because um, our ongoing debate is whether it's pronounced bagel or bagel. There's a British split, really, depending where you're from, um, yeah. as to what's the appropriate terminology. Uh, yeah. Well, it's bagel. Yeah, and if, and if you're from um, Wrongville, 
It's Biden. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like all deep conflicts that have been going on between cultures for a long time, there's an immediate and obvious simple answer that someone who has not thought about it for longer than 10 seconds should be able to provide. And it's bagel in this case. The answer is bagel. Um, before, Russell, before our producer, get... is clapping. I just want to say that he's <laughs> yeah. clapping and possibly cheering from uh, his kitchen where we can see him in a tiny square. He's very happy about that. All I can say is that uh, bagel is my heritage and don't diss it. I'm not dissing it. This is wrong. Not dissing no. your entire heritage, but on this one particular moment, they are all very disappointed in their descendants. Yeah. Well, you've depressed I us. mean, part of my heritage was that I believe for many years that Ingrid Bergman and Ingmar Bergman were the same person. And not only did I believe they were the same person, I had a whole narrative about it in which Ingrid Bergman, after becoming a huge Hollywood star, grew older, less marketable, returned to her native Sweden and became the most important experimental filmmaker of all time. And no one talks about the fact that her art was birthed in the Hollywood machine, but became so experimental. And that's not true. It's wrong. None Have they ever been seen in the same room? <laughs> many, many times. <laughs> Yes. In fact, when you go to Wikipedia and you look one of them up, it says at the top of the thing, this is not the other person. Not the other one. <laughs> which I think there can't be too many entries in Wikipedia that are like that. Maybe for twins. <laughs> Good film. <laughs> I'm impressed that we were talking before about uh, pig, pork, bacon, things like that, because yeah. we, we are going to ask you the next question, all about the six degrees of can't-eat bacon, because we're wanting to know if you have any really interesting Jewish connections with people that you've come across in your life. Say more, what's a good example? The most famous, interesting Jewish connection that you have, but not necessarily this person starred in the adaptations of my books and they're Jewish, right, right. or I worked with this person once. Is there an interesting connection? Is it somebody that you surprisingly found out that you were related to who invented? Someone said their uncle claimed to invent the cupboard or something. It was uh, the comedian Matt Kirshen told us, I think, that his great great uncle told everyone that he in invented the cupboards. Like one day he saw a shelf and he said, you know, it'd be brilliant. Put a door on it. <laughs> In our household, whenever we're admiring something that, like that, we announce that it was invented. We always say that was Bob Cupboard. Like Bob Cupboard invented the cupboard. <laughs> and so then, so, you know, we'll just be like, oh, thank you, Bob Cupboard. And then my favorite part of it is that if we say like, oh, no, the peanut butter's not there. It's on the other cupboard. That was invented by Bob Other Cupboard. So what's so crazy <laughs> is that Bob Cupboard and Bob Other Cupboard had almost the same idea were working in complete isolation, like Tesla and Edison. They invented it almost <laughs> at the same time. Was like apple bobbing invented by Bob Bobbing? Oh, that's good. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we would have to ask Bob Apple because Bob once Apple. he invented the apple, did yeah. they also invent all of the activities that go with the apple, like sin and apple bobbing? <laughs> <laughs> the two famous apple yeah. activities. Right. <laughs> One that is responsible for all of the wickedness in the world and the other one that some people do around Halloween. No. <laughs> now you think about it, now that we haven't been like hugging people and or even shaking hands with people, the idea of like a whole group apple bobbing from the same bucket or whatever is really yeah. gross. Yeah. If COVID has achieved one good thing, it's that we probably wouldn't share a barrel anymore for apple bobbing. A friend of mine, a nice Jewish lady, always says about a lot of situations, you win the pie eating contest and the prize is a pie you know when, yeah. you, when you strive for something and then what you get is not what you want and apple bobbing seems like a wonderful example right if you do it really well you have an apple well guess what there's apples are readily available probably where you are anywhere where there's apple <laughs> bobbing there's plenty of apples you don't have to bob for it <laughs> 
<laughs> you can just probably ask very nicely of the hostess who is setting up or host who is setting up the apple bobbing. Could I just have an apple? And they would say, yes, sure. Here it is. I wouldn't. You, you I'd know. be like, you want an apple? you got to earn your apple. Bob for it. Wow. Bob for it. Is that how you are with all the refreshments at all of your parties? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you got to earn it. Right. There's champagne punch. Oh, yeah. Where is it? It's on, it's on the other side of that moat full of crocodiles. Good luck to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's pre- like gladiators here. Pre-pandemic, that was pretty much the fruit and veg aisle of the supermarkets was just people going around bobbing for whatever it was they needed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pineapples were a chore. We have a like a, a splendid, organic, et cetera, et cetera, uh, supermarket here, beautiful produce. And so you get this strange overlap between kind of intense foodies, gourmets, and then the kind of super paranoid, the people for whom everything has to be organic or they're going to drop dead. And I really liked it during the pandemic because there were mm-hmm. people who were like, we could all die at any moment. But I mean, I'm not going to die without hen of the wood mushrooms. That's insane. I'm going to ruin everything I have so I can get these mushrooms that are only available for like a couple of weeks at this particular store. And I liked the combination of extreme paranoia and like what people couldn't give up, which was really fancy, delicious food. I love the name Hen of the Wood Mushrooms. It's one of the mushrooms that promises more than it delivers, I think. The blood orange is the same thing. Everybody loves the blood orange and the color and et cetera, but they're not as good as oranges. Let's face it. I also don't think that golden delicious are the most delicious apple. No, quite right. Everyone knows that. That Granny Smith is the most delicious apple. I'm going to throw Royal Gala into the mix, but. Okay. I would, that's a perfectly, okay, that's fine. I was going to say touche, but it's not a touche. It's a. It's an uh, agreement. Yeah, it's an, it's, yeah. Easy, it's the Treaty of Versailles. That worked out for everyone. I don't think you should have to pay more for tomatoes on the vine than you pay for tomatoes in a like, punnet, given that you still have to pick them yourself in your own house. Yes, I think when you take tomatoes on the vine home and you take them off the vine while you're making a sauce of potatoes on the vine, that you're basically doing the same thing as being a tomato picker in a huge field of tomatoes working day and night all day. I think those are basically the same activity and should be rewarded as such. See, I hate to perpetuate a stereotype, but we get the tomatoes from the vine and take them off the vine in the supermarket so we don't weigh the vine. Yeah. Is that your most Jewish thing of the week, Philip? It's going to have to be now, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, I I paid 17p by not having the vine. I used to do it with the, I would take the stems from portobello mushrooms because they were so expensive and the stem was so heavy and no one liked it. And so I would, you know, I would hold the mushroom, staring at it like Hamlet's skull, and I would loosen the thing and put it down and put it in the bag. And then I was caught, not while I was doing it, but like someone saw my hand and all of the like mushroom dirt that was caked in it for my crime. And it cured me. They said like, did you take the stems off the mushrooms? And then I had to say, I did. And then they said, don't do that. And I never have since. Yeah, I forgot what we were talking about, but that's a connection to Judaism somewhere surely <laughs> you, yeah. you should have just said jews don't eat the stems and they would eat them. <laughs> i'm so sorry it's against my faith <laughs> no i was saying <laughs> our people have been chased around the world and almost completely destroyed and now you are going to make me eat a stem what am i supposed I to don't eat know no that portobello mushrooms that's crazy i mean you yeah. should never eat mushrooms that's my my I belief mushrooms. i think I'm it's really helpful to have it with a steak and then just leave the mushroom <laughs> <from that part. laughs> 
that, that's, that's your favorite mushroom recipe. Is that it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it gets really tastes steaky. <laughs> I like a recipe that leaves out the whole thing. There was a, uh, a notorious governor of uh, Texas, Ann Richards, and every governor of Texas had to give their chili recipe. And her chili recipe, I can't recite the whole thing, but it was, but it was like put a ribeye steak on the grill, flip it over, continue to simmer the chili, serve the ribeye steak, let the chili simmer, ignore it. That was her recipe. <laughs> Tried it before; it's delicious. Dana, do you have a particular favorite Jewish saying or expression that you love? Yeah, I like zimzum. Zimzum. Um, yeah, and this is an expression, but it's more of a philosophical concept. It is uh, not coincidentally discussed in my new book, uh, Poison for Breakfast, in stores now. Zimsum is that before you make something, you have to have nothing. So you have to create the nothing before you make the something. And it is discussed in the creation of the world that first a space had to be made an, an empty space where you could do something. And it's used when people talk about uh, ritual space, right? And we kind of... You, Instinctively, this has fallen into the culture, and obviously Judaism is not the only culture that's preached this, but you know, we say, I'm gonna make a space for something. Let's make a space so we can talk about this. Let's, that is the um, the kind of interest on the uh, on the principle of uh, Zimsum, the idea that you make nothing first before you make something. And uh, sometimes when I'm having difficulty, pretty much in any sphere that I can imagine, I think, oh, I haven't done this thing. I have to think about clearing the way about making nothing first before I can make something. That's my favorite Jewish expression. I love that. I've never heard that before. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. Um, and they've started to name in America, it's it's ascending. Uh, I've seen some spaces in uh, Jewish centers and things like that called like Zimzum Room. And it's like a room where you can do a bunch of other things, you know, room that can you can have a performance or you can have a meeting or anything like that. And they're calling those that. And I like that. It warms the cockles of my heart. Is there a reverse of it for if you've had everything and then you've got nothing? Zim zim. Everything and then you've got nothing. That's a Martin Scorsese film, I think is what you're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> my friend told a story of seeing the movie Casino and falling asleep and then seeing it again and realizing that he had fallen asleep. Like he'd missed that everything went wrong. He's like, that movie's about people who start a casino and it goes great. They're criminals. They're like, it all works out fine. And then he's like, like, oh, like actually you... for an hour and a half, everything goes completely bananas. Everything yeah, is... if, if you fall asleep halfway through Titanic, it's a similar movie. Yeah. It's, a, it's about this journey they yeah. go on. Right. Fantastic. Free trip on a, on a boat, you meet a nice girl. I think there are a lot of movies. A girl who would make room for you anywhere, even on a small piece of junk. She wouldn't toss you over. Oh, yes, she would. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think there's a lot of movies that could be improved by sleeping through the middle, just having the beginning and the end yeah i was watching a really slow moving horror movie a while ago with my wife and then i fell asleep and i woke up and i said oh what happened and my wife said she killed two people and decapitated them and i was like what what a great way to get (laughs) (laughs) re-engaged i thought oh okay now something's happened that was a nice thing to hear when i woke up and i said what happened she's killed two people and decapitated them oh i missed a lot that would be nice. You don't hear that a lot after a nap. What did I miss? Two murders. You never hear that. <laughs> Russell just said there's an app you can get on your phone which tells you when it's okay to go to the bathroom in the um, like in a movie when you won't miss anything because it's just a boring bit. Oh. That is, I think, a very good public service. I feel like I have that app in my head, which is anytime you want to, it's fine. <laughs> what movie is so good you can't go to the bathroom for a little bit of it? They're Great question. Fine. I imagine the Tomorrow War. <laughs> the app is called Run 
P, by the way. Run P. Run P. I can picture like their headquarters and everybody being like, okay, so like, what's version two? What do we do now? Is is there a Run Poo version? <laughs> what would that even be? Just a longer segment of the movie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's Run P where you've got maybe a minute and a half. Right. Two minutes, perhaps. <laughs> and then there's Run Poo where you've got a full five to ten minutes. Take your phone with you. I don't know if this is a thing, but you could take your phone with you and have your friend or family member or partner in the cinema whatsapp chat or whatever to you what you're missing i feel there's a limited number of people i feel comfortable communicating with whilst using the bathroom and i also think there's a reason they ask you not to use your mobile phone during a movie and i think going to the toilet is one of those topics yeah and i feel like that comment that i just made was the sort of thing that when my husband says sometimes it's okay just to think things he means no i appreciate that you're trying to make sure everyone has a good time but i mean if you go see a james bond movie and then you excuse yourself and you come back 10 minutes later you're not going to be completely lost like what happened oh well the thugs caught up to him you'll never guess it's a Actually, shootout here in the streets of Istanbul I watched the latest James Bond film recently and I knew that I could go to the toilet during the opening credits because they're so long and I right. ran out and got back in time for the, for the main part but of I the mean, film. would you be mystified by any of the tropes in a James Bond movie that goes missing like you're like no. oh he's just met a woman but I have to go pee and you come back you're like you'll never guess what the woman was kind of into him and you missed his feminist rant. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, he's like locked up and the water is rising. And then I went to use the bathroom and I came back and now he's running down the street. Well, you'll never guess. He got out of it just in time. <laughs> well, before any of our listeners need to go to the toilet, we are getting to the end of the show. This is nearly all we've got time for. But how will our audience know what you're up to if you never call, you don't write? Uh, normally we'd allocate 20 seconds to do this, but for you, 30. Daniel, where can our <laughs> listeners find you? Uh, you know, just stop by and say hi whenever you'd like, I suppose. I am not very much on the social media. I There's a Twitter account if you're interested in hearing things that I might be doing in your town. And then I have an Instagram, which is mostly stanzas of poetry that I admire. So if you like looking at poetry or the occasional jokey photograph, then you can find me on Instagram as well. On Instagram, I am author Daniel Handler because I guess Daniel Handler was taken. On Twitter, I'm Daniel Handler because I guess Daniel Handler wasn't taken. And then there is a, if you want, if you're interested in the world of Lemony Snicket, there is a Lemony Snicket uh, Facebook page and a Lemony Snicket Twitter account, which I believe is run by an algorithm. Our old friend Algorithm, Bob Algorithm invented it. And <laughs> Algorithm took it over. I used to think Algorithm would sound like a jazz musician. Like it's <laughs> rhythm and it's children of beat what else there's a postal address on a website that if you feel inclined to write a letter or send me things please don't send me anything edible because i will not eat it you just can't eat those things so it's fine yeah right you just can't eat them do you want to tell us a bit about the new book uh why not yes Poison for Breakfast is a book of philosophy. No, it's a murder mystery. No, it is both of those things, I guess. It is a murder mystery that is more interested in the nature of death than it is about who killed a particular person. And the particular person is Lemony Snicket. He receives a note saying that he had poison for breakfast and he investigates his breakfast and other aspects of the world that might be poisoning him. It's mostly about death. It's a book for children and for adults. If you're interested in death or you're considering doing it eventually, perhaps you should pick up a copy of Poison for breakfast. And I don't want to give any spoilers away, but I gather about halfway through, two people are decapitated. Is that 
Is that that's right? <laughs> when you fall asleep, the nice thing about a book is when you fall asleep, the book has not gone on without you. So you read about the competitions at your leisure. I fell asleep and now the book's on page 243. What am I supposed to do? What's happened to poor Madame Bovary? She seemed unhappy. Well, I've absolutely loved this. And from now on, I always think of you, Daniel, as the Jew who'll eat a dumpling anywhere. I <laughs> <laughs> I will, and someday we'll run into each other and you'll say, oh God, it's true. Look at him right there. He's eating fat dumplings. It has been an absolute pleasure. And as my grandmother used to say when she wanted to end my telephone calls, you must have better things to do than talk to me. And you must have better things to do than talk to us, which is a good thing as sadly we've come to the end of this week's show. We'd like to thank our wonderful guest, Daniel Handler. Follow him on social media. Follow us on social media at Jude Talking without the G. Don't forget to subscribe, like and share the show with everyone you know and check out patreon.com forward slash Jude Talking, still without the G. If it's not a chutzpah to ask, we'd love you to leave us a great review as it helps other people find the show. And join us next time on Jude Talking to Me. <laughs> Jew Talking to Me was hosted by me, Philip Simon. And me, Rachel Krieger. It was produced by Russell Wolkin and judged by our mothers. Let's see, Just, Russell. I know you must have better things to do than talk to me. <laughs> no, no. Well, that was great. It's going to be a lovely, lovely episode. And look, while we were talking, Russell ate all of the oranges. They're all gone. Yeah. <laughs> my vitamin C, my vitamin C is jazz. Yeah. That man will never get scurvy. That's what never. they say. About yeah. I am juice. Um, <laughs>